Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Life is hard, isn't it? Life is hard for everybody. Now, I know it doesn't necessarily seem that way to us sometimes, right? We look at somebody that is wealthy, financially very well off, and we think, well, life isn't hard for them. But statistics dealing in the area of drug abuse and divorce rate and suicide attempts and depression among the wealthy would say something else. There are certain essentials for life. Oxygen would certainly be one. Without it, there would be no life. Water would be another necessity of life. And, of course, food is an important essential. Without these, life wouldn't last very long. For followers of Jesus, however, there's another essential just as important. Can you guess what it is? Faith is the key. Faith is the key to life. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. The fourth essential, of course, is faith. The circumstances of life can be hard. We all know it. But it doesn't have to mean that our circumstances have to rule over us, does it? Today, we kick off a brand new series on Crosswalk entitled Life, Love, Legacy, The Story of Ruth. As we'll hear Pastor Clay say in today's message, the story of Ruth is first and foremost a love story. But there's more to learn from the small Old Testament book than you might first suspect. From Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, it looks like this. When the circumstances of life are hard, a life of faith is essential. As we'll hear today, the kind of life God wants us to have is the kind of life that rises above our circumstances and lives in victory. We're glad you've joined us for our new series from the Book of Ruth on life, love, and legacy. Now, here's Pastor Clay with this week's Crosswalk. Life, love, legacy. Those are probably three of the most important words in our vocabulary. Life. What is it going to be like? What is going to bring satisfaction into it? What makes it full? What, what brings completeness to it? Love. What does it look like? How does it act? What does it do? Legacy. What will be my mark on life? When I, when I leave this place, what difference will my life have made? There are three pretty important concepts to think about. Today, uh, we begin a series that will last for the next few weeks, not very long actually, pretty short series, where we will look at and discuss those concepts from the book of Ruth. Now, obviously, we're not going to cover that subject matter exhaustively from a book that only contains four chapters. But we will have enough to think about and chew on as we dive into the book of Ruth and look at this little Old Testament book and discover what it has to say about these three areas. Now, if you have read the book of Ruth, you probably know that first and foremost, the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, is a love story. First and foremost. But there are some other concepts, some interesting ideas that I want us to spend a few weeks looking at today, or starting today. We're going to begin today in Ruth 
chapter 1. Now, which is a good place to begin when you start a book. (laughs) Now, just as a little background, Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1 says that uh, the, the time of Ruth, the, the story of Ruth, takes place during the time of the judges. Read that in just a moment. During the, the, the time of the judges. Well, when was that? When was the, the time of the judges? The, the writer is referring to a time in the history of the nation of Israel before they had kings. There was a time when they didn't have kings. It's a long story. I don't want to go into all of it today. But the judges ruled, if you will, prior to the kings. Uh, to, to help a little bit, let me show you a little timeline. Now, I know you can't see it, um, but trust me on this. I can see it. And so I'm kind of trying to find I can't wait, by the way. Uh, we're, we're hoping, one thing we're hoping for this year is that we can get some bigger screens. Um, there's a good investment in that when you have to do it, screens and that sort of thing. But I hope we can get some bigger screens and make some of our images a little bit uh, larger. Can I hear an amen? amen? All right, all right. Can I all give $1,000? We'll probably be there. <laughs> um, okay, j- just, to, just to give you a little, sort of little idea. Um, this is going back about 2,000 years before Christ. You had what's called the time of the patriarchs. It's when, when Abraham uh, lived and uh, and, and following that, and God made his promise to Abraham that he's going to make a great nation out of him, and uh, his descendants would be as numerous as the, the sands on the seashore, or the stars in the heavens. And uh, then what happened was you had this, this life and captivity in Egypt. Uh, the people of Egypt, or the people of Israel, the, the descendants of Abraham ended up in Egypt where they were eventually taken into captivity. They were in captivity for 400 years. And then God brought them out, that whole miraculous story of how God brought them out. They had wilderness wanderings. That's that little space right there. Wandered around in the wilderness for about 40 years. And then they entered into the promised land, this piece of property that God has specifically set aside for this particular group of people that he had a plan to use uh, for his his kingdom and, and eternal purposes. And after the wilderness wanderings, when they came into the land, that was the time of the judges. And that falls in there before the United Monarchy, meaning before uh, King Saul and, and David and Solomon and, and all that sort of thing. So that's where the judges are, somewhere around 1200, 1100 B.C. That's when the events take place. We don't know who wrote the book of Ruth, but this God-inspired little book is a wonderful story that I hope will give us some, some interesting insights into life and love and legacy. Let's read this morning in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1, just reading five verses today. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Milan and Chilion also died, and the, whim- and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Life is hard, isn't it? Life is hard. Life is hard for everybody. Now, I, I know it doesn't necessarily seem that way to us sometimes, right? We look at somebody that maybe uh, is wealthy, financially very well off, and we think, well, life isn't hard for them. But statistics dealing in the area of drug abuse and divorce rate and suicide attempts and depression among the wealthy would say something else to us. Life is hard. And life is hard for everybody. Nobody gets a free pass when it comes to the difficulty of life. We live in a sin-cursed world, and with that comes difficult circumstances. It's, it's just part of the deal. Now, I want to begin this morning, as we discuss life, I want to discuss its connection to this thing that we call faith. Faith. What is faith? What is faith look like? What does faith have to do with my life? Because I want to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, faith is the key. Faith is the key to life. You know, in, um, in natural life, to exist, there are certain essentials. Oxygen, water, food. We have to have those to live. But I would add to that list faith. Years ago, I read a book by Dr. James Gillis, in which he referred to faith as the unseen essential. Now, I know what Dr. Gillis meant by that. I understand that what he was saying was that faith is not something physical. Faith is not something tangible. Faith isn't something you can hold in your hand, and therefore it is unseen. But the truth is, and let me just say, Dr. Gillis's book is a great book. It had a tremendous impact on my life. But the truth is, faith can be seen. Faith should be seen. Faith must be seen if it is actually faith. That's what the Apostle James was saying in James chapter 2 when he wrote this. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. In the context of James, what he's saying is, is that a person who has truly entered into a relationship with God, and James is all about action. You read the book of James, he's all about, you know, don't tell me you have faith in God. Don't tell me you believe in God. Show me you believe in God. In the context of James chapter 2, he's saying that a person who truly is in a relationship with God has a, their life is changed as a result of it. They have a different perspective. They have a different purpose in life. And that, that purpose is demonstrated in their life of faith. It just comes out of them. So I want to begin by making some uh, declarative truth statements about faith. Because there's a lot of ideas out there today about what faith is or what faith isn't and how it plays a role in our lives. The first uh, truth statement that I want to share is this. Faith isn't just a spiritual concept Faith is a practical necessity. There is a tendency 
in the world in which we live today, and, and I guess to some extent maybe it's been like that for a long time, but there is a tendency in the world in which we live today to compartmentalize our faith. In other words, faith is something uh, connected to religion. It's, it's a religious thing. It's a spiritual thing. Faith is something maybe a person has in their head and or uh, hopefully in their heart, but it has nothing to do with their hands. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't affect their life. Uh, faith is something uh, that goes over here. It's, it's, it's in this religious part of the world. It's in the religious part of my, my life, but it, but it has nothing to do with my real world living. Unfortunately, a significant number of followers of Jesus, professing followers of Jesus, have bought into or adopted that idea of what faith is. Okay, I keep that over here, boxed up. I'll pull it out on Sunday or something. But it has nothing to do with my real world. A significant number of professing followers of Jesus have bought into that line. I was reading this week in Ebony Magazine. That's right, I get Ebony Magazine. I don't know why I get it. I started getting it a couple of years ago. It's not even addressed to my wife. It's just me. Everything comes to me. I don't pay for it. It just comes to me. So one of y'all probably gave it to me as a gift. Thank you. I was reading in Ebony Magazine this week an article. I don't know if you can see this or not. Here's the article right here. Single, saved, and having sex. Are you going to hell? I said, I got I to credit Ebony for even taking on stuff like that. I do, but I mean, I don't agree with their, their findings because basically the entire article seems to be promoting the idea that sure, you know, in a perfect world, God would want us to remain celibate. If we're not married, he'd, he'd, want, he'd want us to, to have this gift of sexuality only to be enjoyed between a husband and wife. God designed it that way. He had his purposes for that. That in a perfect world that we would do that. But come on, it's the 21st century. And after all, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. You can read the article yourself uh, if, if you pick up a copy of Ebony. But after all, you know, God's a loving God and a gracious God. And God understands it's the 21st century. Here, just read you a, a quote from it, a couple of quotes from it if I can. Um, the, uh, the writer of the article is quoting uh, Sophia Nelson, who's an award-winning uh, author. And she wrote, It is unrealistic in the 21st century to expect celibacy until marriage. Now listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not picking this, this message is not about sex today, okay? Don't get nervous. But I, it's just, just, this is just an example of what I'm talking about, how this idea that we can compartmentalize our faith, we can put it over there, but it doesn't affect our real world. It is unrealistic, let me read it again, it's unrealistic in the 21st century to expect celibacy until marriage. God probably wasn't even thinking that far ahead, was he? Back then when he said, don't have sex unless you're married. He probably wasn't even, he probably didn't know we'd make it to the 21st century. We live in a sexualized society and during a time when people marry much later. Do you hear the reasoning behind that? Well, the people are getting married later and, and so, come on. I mean, sex is good. <laughs> we can't, well, I have, sorry, I forgot, I'm going to talk about sex. Um, and, then, and then here's the one, like Dave says, this one just break your heart. It's the other quote. Just because I have a Bible on my nightstand and condoms in the drawer doesn't mean I love God any less. Listen, do you, do you understand what, where, where this is going, what, what they're saying? 
Faith. Oh, yeah, that's that, that's that thing I keep over there. I'm going to break it out. I'm going to break it out. I'm going to break it bad on you come Sunday. I'm going to break it out, be shouting hallelujah and everything else, because that's, that's where my faith belongs. But it's, it's not the same as the real world. Here's a saying. Maybe some of you have heard this. If you've been around church circles for long, I, I've heard this statement before, uh, unfortunately. Business is business, and church is church. Y'all ever heard that statement? Business is business, and church is church. In other words... I have my religion, I have my faith, and that's all nice and good, but that has nothing to do with, with my business, that has nothing to do with the world, nothing to do with, with how I act in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, nothing could be farther from the truth. The fact is, faith has to affect my world. It has to affect my decisions and my thought processes and my interactions with with my spouse and with my family and with my friends and with my coworkers and, and, and with everybody else. It has to affect that. Or, as James said just a moment in chapter 2, it's not really faith at all. It, it's, it's, it may be religion, it may be something like that, but it, it's not actual faith as we understand it, as the Bible explains it. And, and another thing, here, here's another thing. Let's not act like faith is, is just this this religious thing that belongs over here, because the truth is everybody uses faith every day. I've, share, I've shared this before. We all operate by faith every day. You, you go out every morning to get in your car to go to work or to go to school or to go to wherever, and you put the key in the ignition, and you turn the ignition, and you have every expectation that that engine is going to start, don't you? I, I, I'm not, I know I wasn't there with you, but I'd, I'd be willing to bet that this morning not a single one of you got in under your hood and did an extensive uh, examination of the electrical system of your car. No, you trusted that electrical system, you trusted that battery, you trusted Chevrolet or Ford or Chrysler or Toyota or who, whoever manufactured your car, you trusted that your car was going to stop. It, it's, it's a faith element. You simply believed that it would happen. You drive down the road every day, believing that you won't get in a wreck. By faith, you leave your house. Otherwise, you'd never leave your house, would you? By faith, you get in your car and you go somewhere thinking you're going to arrive at your destination. Not everybody does. We know there are wrecks every day. But, but whether you're trusting in your driving skills or in God's protection or in just dumb luck, it's still faith. You're still trusting in something. Hey, even the atheist walks by faith because he believes that God does not exist, even though he cannot prove that God does not exist. And so by faith, he declares there is no God. You understand what I'm saying? Faith is not a spirit, just a spiritual concept. Faith is a practical necessity. Second truth statement is this. Faith is the most visible when circumstances are the hardest. Now, you know, I guess in some sense, this one even this goes without saying, right? I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. When everything is going well, and I realize that's fairly rarely, right? Fairly rarely, it seems like that everything just skates along and, and goes smoothly and, and everything else. But, but when that happens, when, when, when the everybody's healthy and, and the job is good and the paychecks are rolling in and the bills are being paid and the, and the husband is acting right. And when all those things are going on, quite honestly, it takes very little faith to operate in that world. Do you, you know, you know what I'm saying? It does, I don't have to, I'm good. 
It doesn't take a lot of faith to operate in that world. But, but, when the circumstances are hard, when the trials are difficult, when the diagnosis is bad, when the, when the layoff or the cutback word is being mentioned around the rumor mill of the office or the plant, when, when, you're, when you're struggling to try and keep your, your marriage alive, when you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay your bills and manage to maybe scrape together enough to go on vacation, when the circumstances of life feel like they are about to swallow you alive, can I get a witness? When the circumstances of life feel like they are about to swallow you alive, that, ladies and gentlemen, is when faith, when you begin to live in, walk in, exist in faith, I'm telling you, you're talking about something that stands out, ladies and gentlemen, that that to stand out like a sane person at a Star Trek convention. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That that to stand out like, like Ted Nugent at an anti-gun rally. That to stand out like, like Kiss fans at a Celine Dion concert. Faith in the face of adversity. That's what we're talking about. Faith in the face of adversity is so rare... That it will leap out. Faith is the most visible when the circumstances are the hardest. Now, I'll have more to say about this in just a moment, hopefully. But that may, have, that may give us a little clue as to why God is not, not always as anxious to get us out of our circumstances as we would want Him to be. And then the third concept. Faith in the person of God should result in obedience to the Word of God. Now, here's where we're going to jump into these verses, and I'm sure you all were wondering when I was going to get around to that, but I, was trying, I just wanted to kind of set the stage for this. But faith in the person of God should result in obedience to the Word of God. I'm going to have to go through this pretty quickly, so y'all listen quickly, if you will, please, today. Um, Elimelech, as we read just a moment ago, Elimelech is an Israelite. He's living in the city or the town of Bethlehem which was in the, the area or the province or the, of Judah, which was the part of the land that God had given to the tribe of Judah when they entered into the promised land. That, that part of Canaan was also sometimes referred to as, as uh, Ephrata or Ephraim, which is why they're called, referred to as Ephrathites in verse 2. In verse 1, it says that there was a famine in the land. Probably meaning not just around Bethlehem, but probably referring to all of the land of Israel. Probably, don't know for sure, but probably referring to all of the land of Israel. It is possible, quite possible I would say, that this is a famine that God had brought upon his people to try and bring them to a place of repentance and brokenness to bring them back to him. Remember, this is the time of the judges. The time of the judges, uh, not unlike our day, was a very tumultuous time. It was a time, if you've read this before, in Judges chapter 17, where the writer of Judges reminds us, and every man did what was right in his own sight. Does kind of sound like today, doesn't it? It was a tumultuous time. And so it's very possible that God brought a 
a famine on the people of Israel to try and get their attention to draw them back to him. Now, if you have me sitting there and you're saying, well, I I just don't believe God does that to his people. I I just don't believe that. God is love. Well, let me me ask you just a quick question. When when you were growing up, or if, if you're growing up now, if you're here, a student, a child, if you're growing up, let me ask you a question. Did your parents or do your parents, did they ever discipline you? Did they ever do that? I'm telling you, mine did. I'm pretty sure my dad had a Ph.D. in discipline because he ran a tight ship. Now, did they do that because they hated us or because they loved you and me? Of course, they did it because they loved us, right? Because they knew a little more than we knew and they were, they were making decisions that were in our best interest. Now, if you were a teenager or if you are a teenager here, you don't think so. You're, you're, what you, you thought, probably thought the same thing I did. Why are they trying to ruin my life? What did I ever do to them? Why don't they just leave me alone and let me make my own decisions in life? The reason, ladies and gentlemen, they don't leave us alone is because they love us. Now, why would we expect our Heavenly Father to do any less? If you are His child and you get off track, and we do get off track, why would we not expect Him to do what would need to be done to bring us back to the place that is best for us. But there's a famine in the land. And so, Limech's got a family. He's got two sons. He's got a wife. It's a difficult time. But let me tell you where there's not a famine. In Moab. There's not a famine in Moab, which probably would have been a journey of about 50 miles, which was a lot back then. There's no famine in, in Moab. And so, Elimelech packs up the family and moves to Moab, where there's food. What's wrong with that? I mean, isn't that what he's supposed to do? Isn't he supposed to care for his family? Isn't he supposed to watch out? He's supposed to make provision? Isn't that the role he's supposed to do? Isn't that the natural thing to do? It sure is. There's only one problem. God had forbidden the Israelites to have anything to do with the people of Moab. Moab, ladies and gentlemen, was bad news. I don't know if you're familiar with the story. You can read the whole sordid mess in Genesis chapter 19. But Moab, the nation of Moab started when, when Lot's two daughters, remember Lot was the nephew of Abraham, Lot's two daughters got him drunk and slept with him. And when I say slept with him, I don't mean sleep. Lot's two daughters got their dad drunk, had sex with him so that they could get pregnant. They both got pregnant. The oldest daughter had a son and she named him, wait for it, Moab. From his descendants came the Moabites. The younger daughter had a son. She named him Ammon. And from him came the Ammonites. And both of those nations caused heartache and trouble and problems throughout the history of the, the nation of Israel and for the people of Israel. The, the Moabites were enemies of Israel. Because, of, because they tried to hinder the Israelites when they were going into the promised land. They tried to stop them. They tried to have a, hire some guy to put a curse on them. They were enemies, according to Deuteronomy 23 and, and Numbers 22 through 25. Judges 3 tells us that at one point the Moabites invaded Israel and ruled over the Israelites for a while. Jewish men were forbidden to marry non-Jewish women, but especially the women of Moab or Ammon. According to uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and uh, 23. 
and Ezra 9 and Nehemiah 13. They were forbidden from marrying, especially the people of Moab and Ammon. They're bad news. It was, just to remind you if you've read the story, it was the Moabite women that had seduced the men of Israel in in, uh, Numbers chapter 25, seduced the Jewish men into immorality and idolatry, and God struck 24,000 of them dead on the spot. Moab is bad news. Moab is, is idolatrous. Moab is, is ungodly. Ready? But there's food in, in Moab. So here it comes, Elimelech. Are you ready? The question that you and I have to live with every single day of our lives, am I going to believe God or am I going to believe my circumstances? That's the question. Elimelech's name meant my God is king. But unfortunately, Elimelech let his circumstances rule over him. And he made choices that were contrary to God's will because he walked by sight, ladies and gentlemen, and not by faith. Okay, I know I've got to hurry. I'm almost out of time. I've got some stuff, uh, a lot of stuff to say, but uh, uh, let me just cut some things. Let me, let me give you three um, options for dealing with circumstances when, when, when they happen. Let me give you three options. First option, and these are not new, by the way, with me. Um, first one is to endure it. Circumstances in life, they're all bad. We, I mean, I don't mean all circumstances are bad. I'm just saying we all have them. We all have circumstances that are tough. Circumstances come, go. They may change different times, but we all have circumstances. And quite honestly, until they throw dirt over me and you, we're going to experience circumstances in life. Trials, hardships, difficulties. It's just, it's just the way it is in this world. Option one, we can endure it. Well, it's just, uh, it's just, just, just the way it is. This is, this is my life. This is my lot in life. These are the cards I've been dealt. This is just the way it's going to have to be. And, and woe is me, but, but what can I do? These are just my circumstances. Listen, it is, have, have y'all ever been to that, that place? It is so easy for the natural mind to go to that place, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, oh, I just have, I just have to endure this. I, I guess this is just my cross to bear. This is just what I, that's an option. The second option is we can escape it. Now, that was Elimelech's option. And quite honestly, let's be honest here. I'm being honest. Y'all be honest. That is the preferred option for most of us in this place, isn't it? Escape it. Lord, get me out of here. Do something. Do anything. Change something. Take me somewhere. Make some difference. Do something, God. Get me out of here. I've got to escape from this. Well, now, let's see. How did that work out for Elimelech? According to Warren Wiersbe, they traded one famine for three funerals. At the end of a decade of disobedience, all that was left were three lonely widows and three Jewish graves in a heathen land. Escape it, endure it. I said a, a little bit ago, I think, that, that, what, that Elimelech's decision was the natural thing to do. And either one of those options would fall into that category. But listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, neither one of those options glorifies God. So, there's a third option. We can employ it. We can take our circumstances, or better yet, more properly, we can allow God to take our circumstances and to actually use those circumstances for His kingdom purposes, for His ultimate plans, of which we have no clue and believe that this is what God wants to do. We can choose faith. That's what I'm saying. We can choose faith. 
We can employ the circumstances in a way that completes the purposes God has for them and for our lives. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, if, if you choose this third option, it will change your perspective on your circumstances. It will change your approach to your circumstances. Because you suddenly begin to see them as, boy, I don't like this. This is not comfortable. I just as soon get out of this, Lord. But if you can be glorified through this, if you can use this in some way, if you have plans that I can't even begin to fathom in my mind, Lord God, would you take these circumstances and would you use them as a way that you know best? I'm so glad that you know everything because I sure don't. God, would you use my circumstances? Employ it. Radically change your perspective of your life tomorrow. So, real quickly, I know I've got to move, a lot more to say about that, but let's, let me give you three benefits for choosing option number three. Three benefits for choosing a life of faith. First one is this. It glorifies God. When we choose to believe God over our circumstances, God is glorified. Whatever all that word may mean, and there's some mystery in that, but God is glorified. God is pleased when we choose to believe Him instead of our circumstances. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. I don't care what you do with your life. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how much money you don't make. I don't care uh, whatever amount of fame or notoriety you may reach in your field or even worldwide. I, I don't care how, how long you live. None of that. If, if you come to the end of your days and you have glorified God with your life, it just doesn't get any better than that. There's nothing more that you could possibly hope to accomplish with your life. If you can say, I glorified God. You get a little, little hint of that in 2 Timothy chapter 4 as Paul closes out his last letter before he's executed. And he says, I, I've, I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. It glorifies God. Second benefit, a life of faith witnesses to a lost world. That obviously is connected to the idea of glorifying God. But listen, I, you know this is true. People without a relationship with Jesus have struggles just like people with a relationship with Jesus. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Look up here. <laughs> people without a relationship with Jesus have struggles. People without a relationship with Jesus get cancer diagnosis. People without a relationship with Jesus have marital struggles. People without a relationship with Jesus have, lose their jobs. All of that just like followers of Jesus do. Right? Don't they? So, if... If I, in my circumstance, look no different than them, in other words, I, I handle the circumstance no differently than they handle their circumstance. If I stress and I worry and I become anxious or I become angry or I become uh, jealous or I, I become bitter or I, I worry or whatever all, if, I, if that's how I handle my circumstances, because that's how they're handling their circumstances, if I handle mine just the same, why, why would they possibly want to listen to anything that we have to say? Don't, don't bother to say, hey, now let me tell you about Jesus. Why? I've seen your life. He doesn't seem to be doing much for you. Why would I want him? I can stay home. I don't even have to give money. You understand what I'm saying? But when, when the fruit of the Spirit is produced in our lives, when love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and, and self-control, when all those things are coming out of me, people are going to want to know two, two, two things, two questions people ask you. What have you been smoking and where can I get some? Because... Because they want that. Is there, do you, have you ever met anybody who says, nah, no thanks, I don't, want, I don't want peace. I really want to be disturbed all the time. I want to be upset. I, I want to live in fear. I want my marriage to tank. Uh, I, I want to be angry all the time. Find me somebody to be angry. 
You understand what I'm saying? Everybody wants this stuff, folks. The stuff we're supposed to have, right? Okay, uh, better go on. Uh, Last one. It deepens and strengthens our faith walk. Newsflash, there are more circumstances coming around the bend, ladies and gentlemen. Hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but there are more circumstances coming. Now, your current circumstances may change. They may get better. Different things may come and go in different situations and whatever. But as I said a moment ago, until they throw dirt over me and you, there are going to be circumstances in our life. And if I can can allow the Spirit of God to move me in the direction where I begin to operate, my life begins to operate by faith, then the next time something comes into my life, guess what? I'm a little better equipped. I'm a little more secure. I've got a little more strength and power in my life because I didn't choose option one or two before. I chose to to employ it. And so now the next time something comes into my life, I'm a little better prepared for it. Since they're coming anyway, I, I, I would suggest to you that it would make sense to deepen and strengthen your faith walk. And that comes by choosing faith over your circumstances. So, from time to time, I give you what I call a BP squared, a big picture biblical principle. And from Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, it looks like this. When the circumstances of life are hard, a life of faith is essential. It's essential. We have to choose faith. And I put an imperative on choose. We have to choose faith. It just doesn't, okay, I'll just, it'll just happen to me. No, ladies and gentlemen, no, you have to choose to walk by faith and not by sight because the writer of Hebrews reminds us that the very definition of faith looks like this. Now, faith is the assurance of the things we hope for, the proof of the reality of the things we cannot see. Oh, I can see my circumstances big time. They are all up in my face. I live with them all the time. I can't see faith. I, I, can't, see, I can't see God's purposes or plans. I, I can't see how this is going to work out. I can't, I can't imagine how this, this good is going to come out of this. But by faith, I choose that one. To literally live out the promise of Romans chapter 8 that God works all things together to the good, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I choose to believe that instead of my circumstances. Listen, the book of Ruth, I'm not trying to give away the ending, but the, the book of Ruth is a story of triumph, but it starts out as a story of tragedy because Elimelech chose his circumstances. Elimelech chose to believe that he could do better for his family than God could. But as we'll see, coming weeks, in the providence of God, a little Moabite woman, yes, a Moabite, chose to believe God, and she achieved the victory. Circumstances, faith, life is right in the middle of it. Which one do you choose? Elimelech made a poor choice. He chose to believe his circumstances instead of God. Now, before we come down hard on him, though, we have to take a look at our own lives. How many times have I allowed my circumstances to make my decisions for me instead of trusting God in my circumstances? As we heard Pastor Clay say, everybody has circumstances that are not always pleasant. But when we live life by faith, our circumstances become a tool to be used by God to bring glory to himself, bring others to him, and bring me closer in my walk with him. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. 
Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church. Taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.